Good morning again. So, embracing our mortality. Hmm. In what way is that a celebration of life? I listened to Ken's sermon last week thinking, that is a beautifully crafted sermon. Someone made a comment to me about Ken having set the bar high and winked. I wasn't daunted. I have that graduate degree in psychology. I was complimented on my writing by one of the professors who said, you write like a dream. Yeah. Sadly, uh, though I was sure I could step up to write like a dream for today, Every time I sat down to write it, it sounded bland. So I closed my eyes and looked within and got some guidance. Speak to what you know, to what you've experienced. Paint the picture. So here's the result. It's about my journey of love and loss, transformation, gratitude, connection, peace. I might have called the sermon Confessions of a Death Avoidant Woman, but for Ian in my life. My son was a delightful boy, a thoughtful toddler, soft-spoken, tender-hearted, smart as a whip, kind, playful, and loving. He was the soft spot in my heart and the biggest source of joy in my life. At that point, Ian simply lit up my world until he was gone. I could not avoid his death. I couldn't not talk about him. I couldn't not cry when I did. I couldn't not feel Not quite two and a half, Ian died the day after I took him to daycare, believing him to be well. That evening, he began showing the signs of illness, a quickly spreading infection that looked like a cold. He died the next day of hip-related meningitis, and my life changed. And that's how... I began to develop a healthier relationship with my own mortality. Until then, I was as death-avoidant as anyone. Uh, I avoided death. I avoided the dying. I even avoided those who were grieving as much as possible. It was just simply too uncomfortable. In the wake of Ian's death, however, it was people who had lost a child that provided the most comfort, or anyone who had experienced and survived the death of someone very close to them. We had a kinship. The, uh, um, well, I was actually a child of two cultures. Uh, Many of you know that my parents uh, were Norwegian. Many of you don't. Um, But I was born in California, 
And at age five, moved to Norway for two and a half years, and I've spent many, many vacations there since. As a child of two cultures, I feel richly blessed as an adult. As a child, uh, it was tough. And, um, you know, I'd come home from vacations in Norway, and all my friends would have bonded certain ways over the summer, and, and I felt a little bit like odd man out. When Ian died, I felt like I totally belonged somewhere for the first time in my life. I belonged amongst the people who had lost somebody dear to them. And so, strangely enough, it was the worst moment of my life to that point that gave me the strangest, most wonderful comfort of belonging. Well, I eventually became a grief counselor, and then I became one of them. People who like to talk about a subject as taboo generally as money, politics, sex, and religion. Uh, But actually, my life began long before Ian's birth or death. I was 31 when he died. And I think a little bit of my life might help put it in perspective. There are twin threads running through it. There's a thread of anxiety, fear, and heartbreak, but also of love, support, and encouragement. And here are some of those highlights, milestones, if you will. I think I felt anxious even in the womb. My mother was diagnosed uh, schizophrenic long before I came along, and I worried that it might be my fate as I grew older. Um, Since my dad was a single dad, I came out of the hospital at four days old uh, and uh, spent the first four and a half years on weekdays with a foster family. They were good old folk from Arkansas, and they were good to me. And uh, they gave me a new name. So um, in their family, and still in Norway, because I went to Norway at age five, I'm known as Penny. Yeah, it's strange. In the U.S., I'm Ingrid. In Norway, I'm Penny. (laughs) My dad had me on weekends, and there was a trauma every Saturday because I loved cartoons. So there I was watching my cartoons, and my dad showed up, and he wanted me to come with him. And he said I I would cry, cry, cry until we got to the car, and... Then I'd say, okay, where are we going today? Okay, I was resilient. My aunt Astri came, and we uh, uh, spent a half year with her together before moving off to Norway. And wow, the people looked like me. And uh, I spent two and a half of the most wonderful years in my life. I, I will happily wax poetic to anybody who wants to know about them. But when we moved back, it was just my dad and I. And uh, I was a little girl, and he was a bit of a depressed dad. And, oh, it just didn't feel the same. But I had many vacations. I got to go see them. I had my foster family. I got to go visit them. And I grew up. I thought well of myself. I was the daughter of an engineer. I was bright. 
And so I was admitted to Berkeley straight off the bat. Straight off the bat, I failed two classes. I had not taken any chemistry, and I had cut short my math uh, preparation. So humbly, I took my hat in hand, went up to not the counseling center, but to the um, uh, medical center where there were real psychiatrists. And somewhere in the process of dealing with him, um, I put myself on a um, vision quest. And I went around the Bay Area looking at the beautiful uh, art, the beautiful scenery. I tasted, you know, food. Oh, my God, the Bay Area. You know, I tasted a rich variety of different foods. And I went to funky uh, movie theaters. We all know about that here. Uh, and then I had one black and white movie at the end of that time right at home. And it was a Shirley Temple movie, and it was called, I believe, The Bluebird of Happiness. Have any of you seen that one? Yes? Okay. And she and her little brother went looking high and low throughout their community, searching and searching for the bluebird of happiness. Hmm. They finally had to admit defeat and went home. As soon as they got in the door, they heard... Lo and behold, the bluebird of happiness was right there in their yard. And even as an 18-year-old, I'm pretty proud of this, I went, oh, so you just have to choose happiness. So that's, that's the secret. You choose it, and then you act as if. Oh, boy, that really helped. I'll fast forward a little bit. Um, worked up in Yosemite learned transcendental meditation. I think I practiced it at least two weeks. <laughs> I met my first husband-to-be, Michael, a wounded and abusive soul, mostly uh, emotional and verbal. Tried a couple of physical uh, times, but uh, I, I stopped that. I ended up, uh, during the time I was with him down in the L.A. area, uh, taking the two classes I had failed and, and got A's. Yeah, that was the mission. <laughs> and, uh, and I took a comparative philosophy class and started to look more broadly and spirit. I even got a touch of Robert Schuller. Remember the Crystal Cathedral? But I had enough of Michael after a while. Uh, that would be six and a half years, to be exact. And uh, um, made my way to Davis, UC Davis, to finish my undergraduate degree. And ah, during the period that we were estranged and moving towards divorce, I had a fling. And lo and behold, Ian came to be. Turns out I hadn't been the one that was sterile. Well, had to be one of us. It wasn't me. So Ian came. He was an incredible force of healing. He made my life uh, steadier, joyful. Uh, he was a source of inspiration. Uh, all my nurturing came into the forefront. 
and life was just wonderful. It wasn't uncomplicated, but it was wonderful. And then, as you know, he died. So after a year or two, I went, oh, yeah, I, I just have to claim my joy. That's it. And so I did. And I headed back to Yosemite. I had a great summer. I met Tony, who became my husband, but at that point, his wife was still alive. So uh, I was a good girl. And uh, two years later, uh, we talked and talked and found each other after his wife had died. And I moved here, and wow, it's been 32 years that I've lived here. Before I came here, I had moved an average of every one and a half years. So I feel really steady. Eventually, I made my way to Hospice of Slow, and I found a quote from Hazrat Inayat Khan. God breaks the heart again and again and again until it remains open. Ah, I said, okay. Now I know I have some sense of some good that comes out of Ian's death. It's like my heart can be open. And then, as I went through my graduate courses, uh, the professor who I really kind of worried about the most, but got the most from, at one point said, you know, if you're fearful about something, and I was at that point, she said, take that fear out for a cup of tea. Sit down and make friends with it. Don't let it be such a bugaboo in your life. And she was right, and it helped. Shortly thereafter, um, I learned about the book, A Year to Live, living a year as if it's your last. And that's where my uh, consciousness really opened to this notion of embracing your mortality. Because I don't know if you guys have heard the poem about the dash. There's, there's birth and there's death and there's a dash in between. And your life is all about the dash. Well, that's what this is about. It's about the dash. Tony uh, uh, and I had a great run of 29 and a half years. Boy, did we have a great dash. Uh, but at 90, because he was 25 years older than me, uh, he too died. It took me about a year. Well, there was a pandemic going on, you may remember. But it took me about a year to go, oh, I'm not a caregiver anymore. I can actually get out there. And this is where the... The theme of the month comes in, which, if you read it, can read two different ways, recreation and recreation. Well, I took it both ways. I threw myself into recreation. I went climbing. I, I took a climbing class, actually, up in Tuolumne Meadows. I took a, a surfing class in Pismo Beach. 
I jumped out of an airplane in the Monterey Bay area. I went flying in a hot air balloon for a twilight flight uh, a little south of us. Uh, I rediscovered my love of kayaking that I'd had as a child and youth. I went to Cal Poly and learned how to salsa and do bachata with the Cal Poly students. I had a lot of fun. But I also joined a Rotary Club, and I also did volunteering, and I also went a little deeper into life and recreated my life going forward because we're not the same after the death of somebody very meaningful to us. We're not the same after a lot of different kinds of losses that are very deep in our lives. And recreating your life I had a friend, a hiking friend. I have a friend. And uh, when I talked about going to uh, uh, do this talk and another, he said, oh, good. I've recreated myself many times. I thought, you go, guy. I'm right behind you. Life was hard last year. Uh, we had two people missing from the hospice I work for part-time. And it was just... Not a great year. But I had learned to live in gratitude, and I kept kept that up. <clears throat> and then I ended up at the um, Performing Arts Center New Year's Eve. Wow. It was not just the symphony. It was a group called Jeans uh, uh, and Classics. And the music just woke me up. It just woke my ass up. And uh, I was sitting there going... Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that again, hadn't I? I can claim joy. I can claim lightness of being. And I can go for the gusto with it. And that's what I did. So um, <clears throat> I would like to share a poem that I learned at... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Hospice of Slow. And it's about uh, sorrow, but just think mortality at the same time. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way. Let me none the wiser for all she had to say. <clears throat> I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. So it does take some leaning into the pain, it takes some leaning into the dark part of life to truly appreciate the part that you're living today, to be able to embrace not just your mortality, but truly to embrace life and to make the most of it. As Mike Robbins indicated in his blog, there, there are numerous benefits, appreciating ourselves and others here and now. Letting go of other people's opinions, focusing on appearances and such, self-consciousness in general, connecting to others in a deeper way, deeper and more profound, speaking up for what we really want, going for what we really want. So how can you do that more easily? A Year to Live gives us a chance to do that. It's a book by Stephen Levine. You can find it at the library. You can find it in a bookstore. You can find it online. 
but it invites us to live a life, live a year in your life as if it's your last. And I did that 1999 to 2000 and lived with the question, if I have this much left time left to live, do I want to be doing this? I've hired my dentist. I took Tony up to um, um, Trinity, California, for the uh, clam chowder that he said was the best in the world. I know why. It had cream and bacon in it. (laughs) Anyway, it was a year of living beautifully, uh, and I am doing it again. I'm halfway through doing it again with a group that asked me to, uh, to lead them. So, hmm, what has come of it for me? Life. I love, I love life. And it doesn't have to have certain circumstances. It just has to find me waking up in the morning. I went to something called um, Inner Engineering uh, by a man named Sadhguru, uh, and he says we, we need to go through something like that because we're born, but we're not given a set of instructions on how to make the most out of this body and this mind. So he has this course that I took, most online, and then there was a completion in person. Wow. I now actually meditate each day. I haven't stopped. And... uh I've got, uh, for 40 days, I had uh, the um, experience of him reminding us of truths that he passed along. Uh, but first, it starts with an invocation. From ignorance, lead me to truth. From darkness, lead me to light. From death, lead me to immortality. Um, peace, peace, peace. Although we sing it in... Sanskrit, probably. Then there's some preparatory moves and then several breathing techniques that compose the meditation itself. But before you start, he says, remember, all the rules are my rules. In other words, if you're going to do something, be somewhere, and they have rules, embrace them as your own. Or don't do, or don't do it at all. I'm responsible for everything. That means just that I'm responsible for the here and now to pay attention, to know that much came into my being here and much that comes after will be impacted by what I do. What there is right now is all there is, he says, all there could be. It's because there is only this moment. And everything we want is here, we just have to claim it for ourselves. This is not my body, not my mind. And what he's saying is we're more than that. We have the use of this body, we have the use of this mind, but we are more than that. And lastly, he says, I am a mother to the world. Whether you're a man or woman, he invites you to embrace the world as its mother, treated that kindly. I'm sure the uh, climate change group will want to adopt that. The result has been a daily state of gratitude and blissfulness. 
And there are distractions. Everybody gets distractions. But they're only for a few minutes or a few hours. My compass, though, is set to thoroughly celebrating life. With anxieties tamed, disappointments weathered, increased self-love and self-determination, it is quite a life. If it's not your life, I wish for you the opportunity to experience the freedom and bliss of embracing your mortality and therefore being able to shed anything that prevents your bliss. May it be so.